Well, some of you will remember uh, my 95 Ford Ranger. Uh, I had it when we first started here. I bought it while we were in seminary. Um, we didn't have a whole lot of money, and uh, I needed something to get back and forth to work, but it had to be cheap. Uh, and of course, if you can get something cheap and fun, all the better, right? And so I was thrilled when we found this thing on the, uh, I think it was Kijiji, um, this great little Ford Ranger for sale at a great price. Uh, and not only was it a small truck, but it was, it was push-button 4x4. It was lifted a little bit. had these big mud tires on it. Uh, and, and in my mind, the piece de resistance, it was painted top to bottom in box liner. It was indestructible. Like, it was awesome. I was so thrilled. I went down that night, talked to the guy. The guy that owned it was a mechanic. He told me it's in great condition. It's been cared for. Uh, I've learned since then. Mechanics, their vehicles are horrible. Never buy a mechanic's. Sorry, Dean. I love you, buddy. But <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> okay, unlicensed. Maybe that's better. But I was thrilled. This was it. This was the perfect mix. And so I bought it on the spot that night. Um, looked at it at a, in, a, in a shady parking garage in the dark. Um, drove it home. Overlooked a couple things, but it was still great. And, uh, and, and then everything just kind of started to unravel. Um, the first thing I noticed on the way home, the, the windows didn't go down. But whatever, that's a small thing. I'm sure it's just wiring or switches. I can, I can fix that. And, and uh, the next morning, went out to look at it and realized the, the big mud tires on it weren't on Ford Ranger rims. They were on Jeep rims. And in order to do that, um, he had to remove the 4x4 hubs to put the rims on. So awesome mud tires. Uh, still had the push button, but no 4x4. Um, Looking at the tires, noticed that just over that short evening parked out in front, it left a pretty good-sized puddle of oil underneath it. Um, so much so that in the four years, five years that I owned it, I never changed the oil. I just added new oil. Uh, in fact, I began draining the oil out of our family minivan and just pouring that into the truck because I'm just going to leave it on the highway anyways. Um, and that seemed to have been where it ended until the first rainstorm and then the box liner that it was painted with began to wash off in the rain. He had just painted it with a roller. That was the texture on it, and box liner was his best cover. Um, not all that I hoped it would be. Didn't deliver on its great promises, to say the least. Something I bought that I thought would bring me great joy ended up just bringing frustration and disappointment how often we get our hopes set on things. This will make me happy. This is the thing. This is the one that will finally satisfy me. Uh, and they don't deliver. They don't offer up what was promised. I think that's exactly where we find Israel in Exodus 15. I'm looking at verses 22 and following. The Lord is testing them. He's teaching them. He's the Lord, the, the giver of life. Turn with me uh, in your Bibles, Exodus 15. If you don't have a Bible on you, um, just slip up your hand. One of our ushers will get one to you. We want you to have God's Word open in your lap. Um, this is not about what I have to say. Um, this is about what God's Word says. And we want to just be intentional and um, determined to be rooting out God's truth and, uh, and not, not any wisdom that I might have to offer. In case you've forgotten or if you haven't been with us, um, we're right on the other side of the Red Sea. Israel has just been rescued out from Egypt, this amazing display of God's power, utterly destroying their captives in, in the crashing together of the Red Sea. 
And the beginning, in, the beginning of chapter 15, there's this amazing song. They worship together, this, this joyful worship with, with singing and dancing. And then the Lord begins to test them. Now, not a test like a pass-fail test necessarily. It's not like the Lord needs to learn something about them. There's nothing about them he doesn't know. He, he knows their hearts better than they do. He knows exactly what the future will hold. This isn't for his benefit, it's for their benefit. And, and we read a little snippet, uh, Exodus twenty twenty gives us this great little insight into God's testing. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, and that you may not sin. So that's what God's testing is meant to produce. That they would fear him, they would honor him, and that they would not sin, that they would obey him. So, If you remember, the Lord calls Israel his son. He's testing them like a father tests a son, trains his son, applies some pressure to help him grow and develop. And the first thing we see here in Exodus 15, 22 and following um, is that the Lord is, is testing them. He's teaching them first to expect the emptiness of the wilderness. Let me read this, uh, I'll read this whole passage, uh, and then we'll come back and kind of take it piece at a time. So Exodus 15, starting in verse 22, it says, Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log. And he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water, seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. So fresh out from the Red Sea, they declared the glory of God and worshipped Him as their rescuer. And Moses, following the Lord, leads them out into the wilderness. And this is the beginning of a new era in Israel's existence. This is day one of, of the wilderness wandering. And of course, at this point, they're just heading for the promised land. Um, they're not looking forward to 40 years yet. That, that hasn't been uh, decided yet, um, as far as they know. But this is the beginning of their travel. Leaving Israel, heading for the promised land, and the Lord testing them. And there's a series of tests that we'll see over the next few weeks But here he wants them to to learn to expect the emptiness of the wilderness. Verses 22 to 24, I think, play this out. So they're in the wilderness of Shur. And you ask, well, what do you mean by wilderness? How how wildernessy is it? You know, I've talked to some of these people in Calgary, and they think Olds is pretty much wilderness. Um, Well, I've got a picture. This is wilderness. Um, Maybe wilderness isn't the right word. Maybe wasteland would be better. It's just empty. It, It is just these barren Rocky mountains, that's what they're traveling through. And they've been three days wandering through this wasteland. Um, And 
I'm assuming they would bring water with them, but water's heavy. If you've ever gone backpacking, you, you need some kind of filtration purification system because you can only carry so much water. And uh, whatever they had had apparently run out or was beginning to run out, and uh, still they had found no water supply. So imagine that, walking through this dry wilderness, coming to the end of your water. This is a serious situation. I mean, just to kind of give... Uh, a little bit of fair credit to the Israelites, this is life-threatening. This is a big deal. And to make it worse, um, as they're hurting for water, beginning to get nervous, wondering, am I going to be able to keep my, my kids alive? We're getting dehydrated. They look off in the distance, and there's a pool. The sun glinting off of water. I'm sure uh, a bunch of them probably took out their water bottle and drank that last little bit they had been keeping. The kids run forward to go and, and see this water. They're rejoicing, and they get there with their high hopes and expectations. This is, this is it. This pool is going to satisfy them. This is where they'll, they'll get their full. They're saved. And they get there. They scoop up this beautiful water in their hands, and as they touch it to their mouths, they quickly find this what was intended to be or believed to be cool, fresh, life-giving water is bitter. We're not told what kind of bitter. Maybe it was salt water. Maybe it was coming up from underground with that, that sulfur taint to it. Um, but it's, it's undrinkable. What had promised to satisfy them only left them thirstier still. It's left them thirsty. And their hopes are dashed. They, they've gone from this excitement and, and, and enjoyment and, and, and now nothing. Desperation returns. How quickly they've forgotten everything the Lord had done for them. The, the plagues that God rolled out on Egypt, the, the Red Sea, everything He did to bring them to this place. They, they don't even call on the Lord. They don't even come to Him in prayer. They just grumble against Moses. Why did you bring us out here? What's going on? How, what are we going to drink, Moses? What were you thinking? They don't turn to God because they never hoped in Him to begin with. The Lord was the, the God who saved them, who, who brought them out of slavery, but they didn't expect Him to be the God who would sustain them. They were still looking for the wilderness to supply for their needs. They didn't understand that God would be their provision, their sustenance, their life in the wilderness. And so the Lord is testing them. He's teaching them. Same way you, you put a muscle to the test, you push it to its limits in order to, to make it stronger. He's pushing them to this uncomfortable place to teach them. To teach them that He's the giver of life. He's the sustainer. He's the one that they need to satisfy them and fill them and refresh them. He's not only Savior, He's also Sustainer. And they won't find life anywhere else. I think that's a lesson that we could use today. What is salvation? What does it mean to be a Christian? Is it just this kind of like we get our, our get out of hell free card and then we go back to life as normal? Or, or does trusting the Lord as the giver of life mean something different, mean something more than that? Church, this is the position we're in. We've been rescued out of sin, just like Israel was rescued out of Egypt. This enemy that once enslaved us, but now this, this life in this broken, sinful world, this is life in the wilderness. 
That's where we live. We have to understand this. This is the wilderness. Hebrews 11 tells of the, the great saints that have gone before us and their, their faith in the Lord. And, and verse 13 says this, They all died in faith, not having received the things promised. And there are so many preachers today that want to say, hey, you'll get everything promised here and now. Well, Abraham didn't. Moses didn't. Noah didn't. They died looking forward to something. Having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on this earth. They got it. They understood, we don't belong here. I'm just a stranger here. I'm not in my home country. The beds don't feel right. The food doesn't taste right. There's a funny smell in the air because this isn't my home. I don't belong here. We're just passing through. We're not supposed to be comfortable here. We're not supposed to find our, our joy and our satisfaction and our, our fulfillment here. The degree that we look to the things of this world to satisfy us, to fill us, to give us meaning and purpose and, and identity is the degree to which we'll grumble and be miserable and wrecked when they, when they don't pan out. When they inevitably fail to give what they promised. See, I can laugh about the truck because uh, even though it didn't deliver what it promised, I, I really didn't have a whole lot of hope laid up in it. It was going to be fun, sure, but that was about the extent of it. But if we're honest, how often do we really look to the things around us hoping that they will satisfy? The next vacation, the next relationship, the next job, the next pay raise, the next illicit image or drink or whatever it is. That's why we run after those things, because we believe they will satisfy us. They will give us some joy that we're lacking. If we didn't believe that, we wouldn't run after them. Kids, what are the things that you run to? What are the things that make you happy or that you believe will make you happy? More screen time? Oh, if I could just get that game, if I could just spend a little more time Maybe that one toy that you always wanted. Maybe it's having lots of friends at school or friends that will play the way that you want them to play. Maybe it's freedom to make your own decisions. Why do I always have to do what mom and dad tell me to do? Freedom from chores. My kid's got a lot of work going on this afternoon. It's going to be great. But we think, if only I can get that, then I'll be happy. These are the things we look to for joy, maybe the question to ask would be, what are the things in your life that if they were taken away would cause you to grumble against God, would leave you devastated and angry against God? And, and sometimes we don't know those things until God graciously takes them away to help us see our hearts and how much our hearts have become dependent on the things of this world. He tests us. We need to understand it's Mara. It's all Mara. It's bitter water. It makes these great promises of fresh, cool water. And we take it in our hands and we put it to our lips and it's bitter. It, it doesn't satisfy. It leaves us more empty after than it did before. And some, so much of it is downright poisonous. We live in the desert. We, we have to expect this world will never fully satisfy. Think how ludicrous it would be for some of those Israelites to say, well, I think we're just going to 
set up camp here. Like a, the promised land sounds nice. It's a great promise. It's flowing with milk and honey and luscious and fertile and every man resting under the shade of his own fig tree. That sounds great. But you know what? I'm just going to set up a mud hut here beside these bitter waters. I'm just going to call it good. I'm going to make my home here. It's insane. There's a reason it's the wilderness. There's a reason there's no civilization there. It's empty. We need to expect the emptiness of the wilderness. This, this world is not our home. It's not our destination. Now, there are great gifts that we enjoy in this world. There are things that we can enjoy along the way. Just don't ever expect them to fully satisfy. Don't settle down here. Don't, don't set your heart on the things of the world. Don't expect this world to bring you the fulfillment and satisfaction that you desire. 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desire of the flesh and the desire of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Don't love the world. These things are passing away. They're, They're fleeting and futile. Don't set your heart on anything here. It's not going to satisfy. But, John continues, whoever does the will of God abides forever. And that's exactly where we see um, this passage going next in verses 25 and, and 26. First he says, expect the emptiness of the wilderness and then embrace the life-giving law. Let me read these passages for, verses for us, starting verse 25. And he cried out to the Lord, that's Moses. He cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log. And he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. So here they are, hot, thirsty, standing around this putrid pool of bitter water that had so betrayed them and disappointed them, grumbling against Moses, and and Moses gets it. He cries out to the Lord, God, what do we do? Help us. And the Lord shows Moses a log. He threw the log into the water, and the water became sweet. And the kids are like, yes, the water turned into pop. No, it just, it became drinkable. It became drinkable. Now, as happens with all these passages, people argue about, well, maybe the log was uh, absorbed all of the chemicals in the water that made it bitter. Or maybe it was porous and acted like a filter as the water. It's just a miracle. That's it. It was a miracle. God used Moses and this log as an act of obedience to display his power and he, he transforms the water. And then it seems totally random. Like, what's the logical flow here from turning water sweet? Then it says the Lord made a statute and a rule. And he gave them commands and laws. And he told them if they would carefully obey them, that he would not put on them the diseases that he put on Egypt. I think that should make us think of the plagues. And then we have one of the the names of God uh, laid out, the Lord your healer, I am Yahweh Rapha. 
What's the connection? What's the logical progression of this from bitter water made sweet and the statutes of God, the law of God? Well, there's a, there's a hint in the language um, that we don't see in the, in the English, but verse 25 uh, in the Hebrew, the, the Lord showed him a log. That word showed is the word Torah. It's the Hebrew word that they used for the law of God. In fact, they, they began to use this kind of shorthand for the whole Bible, their Old Testament. So as, as we would say the word of God, they would say the Torah. So the Lord Torahed Moses a log. And he throws it in the water and it turns the water sweet. Then it says the Lord tested them, saying, if you diligently listen to the voice of the Lord and do that which was right, he would spare them of these diseases of all that he did to Egypt. So Moses obeyed God's Torah, throwing the log into the water and God made the water sweet. And if Israel would obey God's Torah, the commands that he had showed them, his statutes and rules, he would make their lives sweet. He would transform their wandering through the wilderness. Following God's law is the path to life. So many people hear about God's law and they get their back up. We're threatened. How dare he? Who is this God that he gets to hand down these commands that I have to follow him? It's threatening. What right does he have to boss me around to tell me what's right and wrong? This, this God of Christianity is so overbearing and oppressive and look at all of these laws. How dare he? That's not how Israel saw it. That's not how Israel saw it at all. They would have been absolutely shocked to hear that. Israel lived in Egypt and, and actually in a broader culture um, that was absolutely obsessed and constantly guessing to try to appease the gods. Right? You want to have a, a good harvest or, or a healthy child. You need to figure out which God you need to appease. And you need to do the right rituals and the right ceremonies or wear the right medallion to, to appease that God so that life will go well. That was, that was their entire life was working in this, this stressful chaos to try to somehow appease the gods. And, and some disaster would happen and there was this wondering, what happened? What did we do? Which God did we offend and how do we make it right? And the Lord is saying, no, I will tell you. I will show you exactly in detail what I expect of you. And if you follow it, it will go well for you. There will be blessing. Let me spell it out for you. And so they loved the law of God. They reveled in the detail of God's law. Deuteronomy 4 Verse 7, it says, For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us, whenever we call upon Him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? They loved God's law. Isn't our God great? Look how wonderful His law is. Look what He's told us and revealed to us. And, and, and we get to know how to enjoy His favor, how to walk in harmony with Him. Psalm 19, verse 7, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. He's writing that about Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He's rejoicing in the law of the God. 
those books that we kind of skip through on the annual reading plan. But think about it. It's God the creator, the designer of this world saying, this is how you live. The very one, God himself, who is the definition of what is good, saying, this is good and right and just. And so to live counter to God's law is to live counter to the very fabric of creation. It's to fight against the the design of this world and to fight against God himself who created it. God's law is a gift to us. It's a road map for life as it should be. Um, Kids, I think I probably reference this verse like 75% of the times that you're in here, but it fits beautifully again. Ephesians 6.1. You know it. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with what? First commandment with a... Somebody know? What? With a promise. There's a promise with this command that it will go well for you that you may live long in the land. What a great promise. What a great hope. Kids, you know how to have a a good life. Honor your father and mother. Not when they're right, but because it is right, teenagers. Um, That's hard, right? Honor your father and mother because this is right. But God says, I'll bless you. I'll honor that. God himself saying, "Here's here's the way to do it. Here's how to have a good life. I'll show you. Don't see God's law as a burden. Don't don't prickle against it. Don't don't fight against it. Now, a lot of people get tangled up here. What are we talking about? Are we talking about Leviticus? Do we do those laws? How much of the Old Testament carries on to the New Testament? Um, Plain and simple, everything before the Gospels, everything Old Testament, that's the Old Covenant. That's the old law that Israel lived under. There's a lot of things we can learn about God from it, but we are not under a single one of those laws. Jesus nullified them when he came. He fulfilled them. Uh, We live under the New Testament. So those laws were right and true for their time. Uh, They reveal things to us about God that we can learn and about the gospel. Uh, But we live in the New Covenant. We live under the New Testament law. So if you're sweating over which laws do I obey, just follow the New Testament laws. At our house, we, we tuck our kids into bed with a song every night. And uh, I've got an old hymn book that we've lifted from one of the churches on the way through. And uh, we've been through it about a half a dozen times, the one in Ezra's room. And uh, Friday night, I was working on this portion of the sermon, and I paused to tuck kids into bed and, and uh, open it up. And uh, just a, a classic old hymn, Trust and Obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. It's that simple. Uh, Verse 4, But we never can prove the delights of His love until all on the altar we lay. For the favor He shows and the joy He bestows are for them who will trust and obey. You want to know God's favor? Do you want to know the joy that He gives? Do you wonder why you don't have joy in your life? Trust and obey. Trust Him. Walk in His commandments. God's law is life. It's given to us not to confine us and control us, but for our good, for our joy, to live according to God's law is to live in the favor of God. That's amazing. We avoid so much unnecessary hardship 
as we journey through this wilderness by following God's law. But consistently we think that we know better. We laugh at the teenagers, but we do the same thing. God, I know what you said, but I think you're wrong. I'm going to do it this way. We say that to God. We say that to the the designer creator of the world. I know a better way, and, and it just ends badly every single time. Every single time. Or just as dangerous, we assume, think about this, we assume that God's law is revealed through our heart. That's treacherous territory. We say things like, I really feel that this is what I should do. I believe God wants me to, or maybe the most terrifying of all, God told me to. I don't doubt the sincerity of what you feel, your genuineness. I I don't doubt that you really want to do what is right, but don't miss this. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can know it? The heart is deceitful. Your heart lies to you. Don't trust your heart. It's corrupted. It's twisted. Your, Your moral compass has been dropped. Don't follow it. Don't trust your heart. Trust God's word. Read God's word. Soak yourself in it to know his truth. Let it confront you, contradict you. I was talking with a fellow at, at Bean Brokers this last week, sitting there having coffee, and, and he was telling me his approach to Scripture. If you're familiar with Joseph Spong, you'll, you'll know where we're coming from. Um, it's to read God's word and just kind of decide which parts apply and which don't. And the basic process is, I like this, let's do that. I don't like this, this is not what Jesus said. We just use God's law and we filter it by what we feel is right? Or do we go to God's word and correct our heart? I feel like this is right, but God's word says no, so I need to push that out. That's hard. The hardest thing in this world, I think, is to say no to your own heart. My being says this is good this is right and God's word says no you missed it that's difficult but as Christians we have to learn to do that constantly to let God's word correct us saying no to the desires of the flesh Knowing that this this wilderness will not satisfy there's nothing here that will give me the joy that I'm seeking after to embrace the the life-giving law, and then verse 27, to enjoy life in the Lord. This is the big payoff. Look at verse 27. It says, Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. And that's, that's a beautiful picture. From the miracle at Marah, the Lord then led them to Elam, And there's not just one spring, there's 12 springs, a spring for every tribe, and there's 70 palm trees, precious shade in that hot, dry desert. There's no reason to think these are not literal numbers, but both of these numbers are also significant uh, symbolically in Scripture. 12 and 70 both are, are used as numbers to imply fullness, completeness. Think how nice that would have been pools of water, 
fresh water, drinkable water. The kids are swimming and playing and, and palm trees. Somebody's hanging a hammock up. This is a good place. It's like a resort in the middle of the desert. He brought them to a place of rest. He brought them to a place of blessing, of, of fullness in the middle of the desert, and they encamped there. This is, this is like May long weekend without the snow. Um, they, they've set up tents. This is where we're going to stay. It's a good place to be. This is a physical representation of God's blessing. Saying, this is what will happen. Follow me, trust me, and this is what I will provide for you. Rest, refreshment, peace. Man, you talk about things that, that never quite satisfy. I wrestle with this every time we go on vacation. I go into vacation thinking, this is it. I'm going to have rest now. And my kids come with me. Love you guys. <laughs> and my sin comes with me. And, and I want to go and do this one great thing and it falls apart or whatever. Every t- The last few years I've had to be really intentional going into vacation saying, you know what, this is going to be good, but it's a glimpse of heaven. That's what vacation is meant to be, right? As we think about a rest, we're just let it point us to the fullness that I'm longing for. It's coming. It will be in the Lord in eternity. But that's what God's bringing them to here, this, this glimpse this picture of, of what he has in store for those who will obey him. Do we believe that? Do we really believe as we travel through this wilderness filled with, with bitter springs that get our hopes up and dash them again, that, that, that living according to his pattern for life is the path of, of joy and that that path leads to the fullness of blessing in him, that he is what satisfies. He is what our hearts really long after. Psalm 63 is one of my favorites. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in your sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live and in your name I will lift up my hands. Listen to this. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. I love, uh, I love steak. And I love eating steak with my wife. Because my wife cuts off all the best parts of her steak. And I get to eat that too. And so I get satisfied on fat and rich food. That's what he's talking about. Full satisfaction in God. The Lord is our Elam. He is that fresh spring of water, the the oasis surrounded by palm trees in the desert. The reason we're never satisfied here is because we weren't created to be satisfied by these temporal, sin-twisted things. We were created to be satisfied in God and God alone. Augustine put it that our hearts are restless until they rest in you, O God. And yes, that applies to eternity for sure that's where we'll find the fullness of this blessing but i think there's there's a a glimmer of this that we get here and now you've seen the verse printed everywhere i can do all things through christ who strengthens me do we really know what that means Um, shockingly it's it's actually not about winning football games i know um blew me away look at the context philippians 4 verse 10 
Paul says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In, every, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So what are the all things that he's talking about? Being low, being hungry, being in need, and doing it with contentment. And I think the word content is a little soft there. It's a little underwhelming. Um, You get to the root of what he's saying. It has this sense of fullness, of of satisfaction. It's, It's... we use content as like, yeah, I'm not, you know, it's not really good or bad. I'm content. I'm okay with it. Maybe better would be the word satisfied, like from Psalm 63. My soul is filled and content with rich food. Paul's saying, I have everything I need. I have fulfillment. I have my identity and my meaning and my purpose in life. I don't need any of that other stuff doesn't matter to him if he's rich or poor or hungry or filled. Why? Because that's not what he was looking to for his joy. He's fulfilled in the Lord. It's Christ who gives him strength for contentment. The Lord is his Elam in the wilderness. He doesn't need anything else. Do you enjoy that life in the Lord? Do you have that relationship with God, that you rest in Him, that you find your joy in Him. Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. Your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Man, I did not get that for a lot of years of going to church. Joy in God? Like that, was, that was nonsense to me. We miss that. Again, we think God's law is a, a burden and, and, a, and a drudgery, and that God is this taskmaster, and we get it all backwards. There's joy in God. If you know that God, if you're drawing water from that well, you have a joy that is unshakable in this world, untouchable. No debt or cancer or marital strife or job loss or anything in this world can, can touch it because, because at your root, there's water. There's a fullness, a richness there. Now, don't get me wrong. We feel those things. They still happen to us. We still hit those, those things as we, as we wander through this wilderness. We still face pain and suffering and trials. And they hurt. But they don't shake us to our core. They don't steal our underlying joy. Colossians 3 says, Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. My life is hidden with Christ in God. It's untouchable. Nothing can attack that. So expecting the emptiness of the wilderness and embracing this law of life, we then get to enjoy life in the Lord. But some of you no doubt have spotted the problem here. As much as embracing the law of Life is a good thing. And the degree to which we live according to God's law is the degree to which we find this joy through the wilderness. If you know anything about this God, um, He demands perfect obedience. 
to find his favor, ultimately. And unless we keep that law perfectly, we're guilty of breaking it and God is just. And so we look at Israel complaining and grumbling and we ask, how on earth did they get to Elam? God says, follow me, obey me, and I will bless you. But God set this out from the beginning to Adam and Eve. The moment you eat of that fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. Your relationship with my favor will be broken and you will come under my curse, my judgment. You will experience death rather than life. So the law actually has this double purpose. Yes, it is this roadmap for life, but it's also a mirror for sin. Kids, your mom ever had some nasty green thing stuck in her teeth from some gross smoothie she was drinking? Yeah, yours too? Good. You guys can be friends. Uh, She doesn't even know it's there. And guess what? You guys probably came into the house the other day with this big smear of mud down your cheek, or you got up from dinner with, with ketchup on your nose, and you didn't even know until you look in the mirror. Ah, what is that? How long has that been there? I didn't know. That's how the law of God works. I think I'm doing fine. My heart tells me everything is A-OK. I'm doing great. I'm better than my neighbor. I do more, bad th- or more good things than bad things. Probably not if we're actually careful about that, but, but it's good enough. And we look at the law of God. Say, oh, no. Oh, no. This is bad. This is worse than I thought. I'm in trouble. How will I ever step into God's blessing? How will I ever get from Mara to Elam? I, I don't deserve it. He tells them, verse 26, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in His eyes and give ear to His commandments and keep all His statutes, He will be their healer, their, their rescuer. He will care for them. It will go well for them. So, Diligently listen. Keep all of his statutes. Kids, how did, uh, how did Israel do on that? Did they pass, fail? They failed. They failed. They, they did not do all of God's commandments. They weren't trusting God. They were grumbling against him. So how is it that they find themselves in Elam? How is it that they get then to enjoy the favor of God anyway? He led an ungrateful, unfaithful people into his blessing. He gave them the rest they didn't deserve. I know the Lord, uh, I already said the Lord testing them wasn't a a pass-fail kind of test, and yet, if we're honest, they failed, right? The Lord applied a little bit of pressure, and they broke. They did not trust Him. How did they get to Elam? Well, from the very beginning, God is operating with grace, giving grace undeserved favor. We need to answer this question as well because we're in the same spot, aren't we? We find ourselves in the same place as Israel and and Adam and Eve before them. We're guilty of breaking God's law. We think, well, I'll I'll do better from here on out. I I can stop. I'll start following God's law now, but it's too late. We've already broken it. James says if anyone keeps the whole law of God but stumbles at just one point, he's guilty of breaking all of it. The law is this mirror for our sin, and we are all guilty and worthy of punishment, not blessing. 
So how can God possibly gain, give His favor to us? This amazing joy and rest and satisfaction that He promised. That's the big question of the Bible. How can God be holy and just and still bless sinners? Remember, Israel was called God's son. One day a new son would come, the true son. And just like Israel passed through the Red Sea and was brought into the wilderness to be tested, this son passed through the water of baptism, and where does he go immediately next? Into the wilderness to be tested. Matthew 4 says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. And and the word there is tested. It's the same word the Septuagint uses in Exodus 15. Jesus was tested just like Israel. Through the water, into the wilderness, and, and 40 days without food. I think he was hungry. I think he would have liked a bite to eat. I think he had as much opportunity as Israel had to begin to grumble against God. But instead, as he's tempted, he says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. What I really need is not bread to fill my stomach, but the law of God. Satan offers him the kingdom of the world, and he says, I don't need everything this world has. What I need is to worship God only. Jesus passed the test that Israel had failed. He passed the test that we never could have passed, and and, and not just in the wilderness, but through the course of his entire life. He lived this life of of perfect obedience. He did exactly what God asked of him. He kept every law. There's this amazing thing then, that he takes that perfect obedience, that righteousness, his 100% perfect score, and he offers it to us. We often talk about how Jesus died to pay the the debt, the penalty for our sin, and, and we should. That's huge. We needed that. But on the other hand, he also credited us with his perfect obedience. He not only paid the debt of our sin, he credited us with his perfect obedience. Now, this doesn't negate the fact that, that living every day following God's law is the path to joy in, in day-to-day life. That's still true. We still need that, but when it comes to our ultimate acceptance before God, you you can't earn it. If you're trying to gain God's favor by obedience, if you're trying to win a spot in His blessing by being a good person, it, it won't work. We've already failed that test. We need someone to take it for us. We need someone to stand in our place. We need what Luther called an alien righteousness a righteousness from outside of us. Something we never could have accomplished. And so he gives it as a gift. He made this way, sending his son to live and die in our place. So we want to remember, celebrate, that obedience together, trusting in what He has done. Eating and drinking 
together the symbols that, that Jesus commanded us to. So we're going to celebrate communion together.